Disney-ish episode 18, The Shape of Water. For Disney fans, I am your host, Christopher. And uh, in the last episode, Rick and I talked about the movie The Nightmare Before Christmas because it is spooky time. It is October. Um, and I am following that up with The Shape of Water, not necessarily because The Shape of Water is a horror movie. I definitely would not consider it a horror movie, but it definitely does have some spooky elements. It's a little bit violent and gory at times. And also, it is heavily inspired by The Creature from the Black Lagoon, um, which very much is a horror movie. In fact, I, in preparation for this episode, watched The Creature from the Black Lagoon for the first time ever. And it definitely has a lot of uh, like very early elements, I guess, of slashers because it's basically a group of people that are going to a strange like outdoorsy place that they're not familiar with and a mysterious killer basically eliminates them one by one and so it really does have the early markings of a slasher even though that genre didn't really exist yet uh so the original like the creature from the black lagoon i would definitely argue is a horror movie Whereas The Shape of Water, which is heavily inspired by the creature from the Black Lagoon, is really more like a dark fantasy romance sort of thing. But like I said, it definitely does have some spooky elements, so I figured it would still be appropriate for October, for spooky season. Um, and I'm definitely very glad that I did watch The Creature from the Black Lagoon before watching The Shape of Water, because even though it is like very different. Uh, they are very, very different toned movies um, with crucial narrative differences, uh, very different heroes and villains and that sort of thing. Um, there are also a lot of parallels and little nods to the creature from the Black Lagoon that I wouldn't have picked up on probably had I not seen the creature from the Black Lagoon first. So I'm really glad that I did. And that was actually Rick's suggestion was, uh, you know, try to watch the creature from the black lagoon first. And I did. Um, but yeah, speaking of Rick, um, he is back this week on this episode to talk about the shape of water. Uh, if you've heard the, uh, the episode that we did on Maleficent mistress of evil, and then the most recent episode, the one that we did on the nightmare before Christmas, then, uh, you are already familiar with Rick. Um, but yeah, <laughs> welcome back, Rick. Uh, how are you doing? I am very excited to be part of another Disney podcast, Christopher. Thank you. Um, I had a great time uh, t discussing The Nightmare Before Christmas with you, and so I was really excited to talk about The Shape of Water and the film that inspired it, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And like you said, I can't stress enough that anyone planning on watching The Shape of Water, it's a good idea to watch Creature from the Black Lagoon first so you can kind of see where uh, Guillermo del Toro got his inspiration for the movie. Yeah, and we'll get into uh, that inspiration a little bit when we talk about the trivia behind the movie. Uh, but yeah, this was actually Rick's idea. Uh, 
back when I first shared with him that I was planning on doing a Disney podcast, uh, and we talked about possibly having him on, um, having Rick on, uh, you know, we were throwing out ideas as to what movies we could maybe talk about together on the podcast. And I think that you said something, Rick, like, uh, does the shape of water have any affiliation with Disney? And I looked it up and sure enough, it does. It was released under 20th Century Fox, which I think is now called Searchlight. Um, and that is now a subsidiary of Disney. So this movie is now owned by Disney might even be on Disney plus. I don't know. I didn't check. Uh, but yeah, so this is, some of you might be wondering, this is a Disney podcast. Why are you talking about this movie from 2017? That is not a Disney movie, but it actually technically is. Um, not the first time I've done that on the podcast. I talked about a horror movie called the menu several months ago, which was also released under searchlight. Uh, so that was one of the reasons why I chose to do a Disney podcast is that it gives me, hence the name of the podcast, it gives me a niche while also allowing me to be very broad and expansive, you know, um, because Disney owns so much. <laughs> um, all right. So um, some general info about this movie. It was originally screened on August 31st, 2017 in Venice, probably the Venice Film Festival. Uh, but then it got a more widespread release on December 1st, 2017. And uh, it was written by Guillermo del Toro and Vanessa Taylor and directed by Guillermo del Toro. I really love, uh, I was just having a conversation about this with somebody last night about how uh, it's gotten to a point in Hollywood where people don't really care so much anymore about artists or not artists. Well, yes, artists, but directors and writers, you know, it used to be there was a time when people were very much like, uh, oh, have you seen the new Ridley Scott film? Or have you seen the new Tim Burton film? Or have you seen uh, the new, I'm trying to think of a like a really big name director that people get excited about, uh, Christopher Nolan, you know? Um, it's gotten to a point where because people are so much more invested in like cinematic universes and characters and stuff like that, directors and writers don't really matter as much anymore. We were talking about this last night, someone and I, and... Uh, I really love when I see, it just makes me so excited whenever I see a project that was written and directed by the same person, because that usually means that yeah. this person really cared about this. It was, it was not just to make money. It was to make art. It was to tell a story, you know, and you can tell that Guillermo really, really cared about this movie. So I just love that. Uh, and we'll get more into that into the, when we get to the uh, trivia, but this stars Sally Hawkins as uh, Eliza Esposito, Doug Jones as the Amphibian Man, which is uh, another Disney uh, connection there, actually, because he plays um, Billy in Hocus Pocus and Hocus Pocus 2. Uh, Richard Jenkins as Giles, Octavia Spencer as Zelda Delilah Fuller, Michael Shannon as Richard Strickland. Ugh. Ugh. Ugh, <laughs> 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 oh, I hate even just saying his name. One of the most yes. despicable characters of all time. Truly. Michael Stolberg as Robert Hofstetler slash Dimitri Mosenkov. Uh, you know, he's the uh the the guy that's working at the lab um as a double agent, uh, you know, a Russian spy. Uh and then Nick Searcy as Frank Hoyt. And the music in this movie, which is phenomenal, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. Uh, but it's by Alexander Desplat. 
All right, so brief plot synopsis for this movie. Uh, at a top-secret research facility in the 1960s, a lonely janitor forms a unique relationship with an amphibious creature that is being held in captivity. So that's actually another thing that I wanted to briefly touch upon, uh, is that the interesting thing about this movie is that I kind of went into it expecting it to be sort of like a loose remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, like sort of like uh, Maleficent to Sleeping Beauty, you know? Like, it's kind of sort of like the same story, but you're seeing it from a different perspective. Like, that's kind of what I thought this was. And it's not, and I'm glad it's not. I'm kind of glad that they just decided to, Guillermo del Toro kind of just decided to tell his own story that was loosely inspired by the creature from the Black Lagoon. But I went into it expecting it to be more of like a soft remake, you know, like a a, a loose remake, and it's not. Uh, and it's funny, though, because this is almost like a what-if scenario. Like, what if... Uh, what's his name? Richard Strickland was on that expedition in the creature from the Black Lagoon and successfully apprehended him. You know, like it's almost like a, a sequel to a what if scenario. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you also have characters that stand in for other characters like Eliza is sort of like Kay. She's the, uh, you know, the the sort of like the female love interest. Lead. What's that? The female lead. And yeah, the interest. female lead, the love interest of the creature. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, although, I mean, we'll talk about this in the trivia, but the creature from the Black Lagoon doesn't really ever explicitly make it clear what his intentions were with Kay. Like, did he love her and he just wanted to spend his life with her, or was he going to... I don't think he was going to kill her or hurt her, because it seems like he would have if he was going to, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. That that movie, which I kind of like because that's usually makes for a good horror movie is when not everything is explained, you know, but I kind of like that you don't really know what his intentions were. And this is like Guillermo del Toro imagining that, yeah, he, he really did love her. And this is maybe some sort of fairy tale version that could have happened if they could have been together, you know, so... Um, which is a good segue into our trivia. So the genesis of the idea for this film began, as uh, Guillermo del Toro explained in an interview, um, with reruns of the classic 1954 monster movie, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Says del Toro, I thought it would be great if the creature and Julie Adams, who plays Kay Lawrence in the film, would end up living together. I was six. I didn't know better but I'm 53 and I still don't know better because I made this movie. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, uh, I, I really like that because it just goes to show that sometimes, uh, you know, childhood imagination can be such a beautiful thing. Like he fed into that, that had clearly been something that was on his mind his entire life. And, uh, he, he gave into it and we ended up with a beautiful, beautiful, dark fantasy fairy tale movie that won an Academy award. So so sometimes it can be just really a wonderful thing to to feed into that inner child and heal it. So I'm glad I'm really glad that uh, he, <laughs> you know, even at 53, he was like, yeah, let's still do this. Let's still do this. Exactly. <laughs> um, the next trivia item, and, and it sort of fits in with what you said about this being definitely being a passion project yeah. for Del Toro. He said that if this film had flopped, he would have retired from directing altogether. Although he also said the same thing. Uh, with Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone. 
that he also directed due to the personal nature of the projects. Yeah. And uh, I haven't seen The Devil's Backbone, but I have seen Pan's Labyrinth, and Doug Jones is in that as well. Um, is it good? Is Pan's Labyrinth good? The thing about Pan's Labyrinth is that it's very, very, very dark and disturbing. Like, it's not technically a horror movie. It's also like a dark fantasy. But okay. it doesn't have the happy ending that The Shape of Water does. It's very disturbing. Uh, okay. So, you know... You got to be watching it on a very sunny day, you know, with somebody <laughs> at your side. I watched it late at night and I was very deeply disturbed. So, um, but it definitely does like he is very much like an auteur. Like you watch a Guillermo del Toro movie and you can kind of tell it's Guillermo del Toro, you know, like Pan's Labyrinth, uh, The Shape of Water. What's that horror movie that he did with uh, Tom Hiddleston? Crimson Peak. Uh, yeah. And that's another that's one. Like, you watch Crimson Peak. Uh, I think he did... Um, oh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, yeah. Um, that's another one that, like, that one and Crimson Peak especially have, like, very, very, very similar looks to them. Um, so it's just one of those things where you can kind of almost tell. Like, if you compare Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, it's like, yeah, that's definitely the same director. Uh so, yeah, he definitely does have, I think, a uh, sort of like Tim Burton. He has he has a style. He has a signature. Um, you know, he's definitely an, an artist. Guillermo said about Sally Hawkins, not only was she the first choice, she was the only choice. I wrote the movie for Sally. I wrote the movie for Michael Shannon. I wanted the character of Eliza to be beautiful in her own way, not in a way that is like a perfume commercial kind of way. <laughs> that you could believe that this character, this woman, would be sitting next to you on the bus. But at the same time, she would have a luminosity, a beauty, almost magical, ethereal. Yeah, I think she was perfectly casted, for sure. Agreed, agreed. Uh, Guillermo wrote lengthy backstories for each of his major characters, some of them reportedly running over 40 pages long. After casting the roles, he offered them to the actors and said they could choose to utilize or ignore these backstories for their own character. The actors responded differently, with Richard Jenkins, who played Giles, saying he ignored the backstory, stating the only thing that matters is what happens on screen, while Michael Stuhlberg, Dr. Robert Hofstetler, slash Dimitri, said he read the backstory voraciously and found it helpful in his performance. That is so awesome, because... Uh... I did not know that going into this movie. I didn't know that until after I saw it. And it just made so much sense to me because I was like, yeah, you can tell that this cast knows who they're playing. Like they understand yeah. their characters, you know, and that's a rarity in a movie where everybody, I mean, I think this is a little off topic, but I think that's another thing that Barbie got really right is that you could tell everybody knew exactly what they were doing, you know? Um, in this movie, same deal. Like, everyone knows exactly who they're playing. They understand their characters. Uh, and I didn't know that. That's exactly why. <laughs> That's very and cool. how fascinating to think how different the Giles character might have been if he would have read those backstories. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm glad he did or, 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 I'm sorry, glad he didn't or wish he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just, it's interesting because uh, it just... Like you said, you're not sure if you're glad whether or not he did, because that's also, I think, a valid philosophy for him to have, that the only thing that matters is what happens on screen. Like, right. if I'm a good actor, I don't need that backstory, you know? Like, you can kind of see that viewpoint as well. So, right. it's interesting, yeah, like, how would Giles 
possibly have been different uh, if he had read that backstory. And I remember reading somewhere, I don't remember the list of all of the actors that were approached, but apparently, unlike Sally and uh, Michael, uh, Richard was not the original uh the original actor in mind for Giles. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't remember who it was, but they turned it down. And then <laughs> I think uh, Richard was maybe the third or fourth person that was asked and he immediately accepted. So yeah, he was perfect. Yeah. Oh, I know he plays the role so well. Giles is one of my favorite characters. I mean, honestly, it's really hard for me to even choose a favorite character because aside from Strickland, I honestly just like love everybody. You know, they're just they're so richly written, wonderful characters that you can empathize with. Even Amphibian Man, who has like no lines. I loved him, you know. <laughs> yes. Um. So, yeah, it's just such wonderfully written and portrayed characters. Uh, when The Shape of Water premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2017, the screening was held in the Elgin or Elgin. I'm not sure. I actually have not heard of that theater before, so I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. Uh, the screening was held in the Elgin Theater. The interior scenes of the theater in the film were shot in the Elgin Theater. So as the audience was watching the film, they were seeing the same theater on screen that they were sitting in. Oh, wow. <laughs> how insane. How, how, wow. That's so cool. That's like... <laughs> That when I read that, I was like, you know what? That's a bucket list thing. I'm gonna see a movie in that theater, you know, <laughs> if it's still around. Doug Jones, uh, who played the creature, spent three hours every day getting into the creature costume. According to him, it was nothing compared to the previous costumes he had worn for other films by Guillermo. Yeah, which makes sense because the character that he plays in uh, the Shape of not the Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, I mean, he's even more alien looking than the amphibian man. <laughs> uh, so that makes sense. Yeah. And I was curious about that. I was like, I wonder, it's so cool for me to know that that was actually a physical costume. Cause I was kind of curious about that. I was like, I can't tell if this is practical or digital, you know? Yeah. I think it might've been a little bit of a combination of both because like the way that the amphibian man's eyes move, for example, I don't know how they could have possibly done that practically. That had to have been digitally animated. Uh, one day after completing her demanding underwater scenes for this film, Sally Hawkins flew to London to begin production on Paddington 2 in 2017, only to find out that she would have to shoot underwater scenes for that film on the first day. <laughs> <laughs> poor oh, lady. Poor Sally, yeah. <laughs> That's got to be a challenge. <laughs> That's got to be a challenge to like have to hold your breath for that long. and Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel I like in every movie I've ever seen, like behind the scenes where there's water, the actors always say, and we were freezing. Yes, yes. Um, I haven't seen Paddington 2. Um, I don't think I've even seen the first one, so <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> what scene it's referring to there. But um, I did see Sally Hawkins in, I mentioned this to you, um, a movie called A Brilliant Young Mind. It's a wonderful, wonderful, I highly recommend it wonderful movie it's about this teenage boy with autism who's a math whiz and uh his mom who sally hawkins plays is dealing with the death of her husband and um the the boy's father uh and is trying to heal from that and sends him to this uh math like 
competition. It's like a camp where he stays for a few weeks as they study, and then they end up going to a competition. And it's just a very human, beautiful story with a wonderful soundtrack. And um, yeah, she's in that. So as soon as I saw like her face in this movie, I was like, oh, that's, that's, uh, yeah, I, I know her from a brilliant young mind. So um, you might like sometimes see it listed as X plus Y. It's a movie that technically has two different titles depending on where in the oh, world, wow. yeah, it was released. Um, and that makes sense too because it's like the the male chromosome, the female chromosome, and there is a love story in there and it's about math. So that makes sense too. But oh, nice. Yeah. Um, wonderful movie. But yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to Sally Hawkins because I know her from that and she's wonderful in that movie too. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. It's too bad we don't live closer because I have it on DVD. We could just <laughs> we could just hang out and watch it. <laughs> we would never get anything done. <laughs> I know. Uh, all right. So um, all of these come from IMDb. The link to the full list will be on uh, will be in rather the show notes for you if you want to check them all out. All right. So uh, you ready to talk about the Shape of Water? Yes. Okay. Uh, so the first observation that I want to make is that. Sometimes with uh, movies and shows, I get kind of curious about names and maybe why they might have been chosen. Uh, and so especially since like we find out later in the movie, I didn't even know this, that her last name, Esposito, means orphan. I didn't know that. So I was like, I wonder if her first name has any significance. And they talk about names a lot in the movie, like Esposito meaning orphan and... Uh, Zelda's middle name, Delilah, you know, and she does end up betraying Strickland. <laughs> uh, true. Yeah. True. Um, so I was thinking, I was like, I wonder if Eliza is like significant at all. And so I looked up the meaning of that and the name means God is a promise. I mean, that had to have been That's intentional, perfect. you know, because frequently throughout the movie, the creature is referred to as a God, you know? And he is very much a promise to her. He's a promise for a new life. He's a promise to be loved. He's a promise to no longer be lonely and misunderstood. You know? So I think that was probably very much intentional. Probably. Uh, Eliza's world is so relatable, I think, because, we, you know, we see her trapped in this very routine-based life. And yet she's still able to find moments of joy or color <laughs> in her black and white or black and green world. Um, whether she's dancing in the hallway, preparing meals for her starving artist friend Giles, or uh, doing some self-care. <laughs> <laughs> but, but clearly we we sense that she longs for more. Yes, absolutely. Um, which, you know, I mean, I think that tends to make for very compelling characters. We talked about this in The Nightmare Before Christmas, that uh, Jack and Sally are like that too. Like, they have this routine, day after day is exactly the same, they're lonely, you know, they want connection, they want something more, and um, yeah, that makes for a very compelling character arc, I think. Um, but I did have a brief uh, thought or question, I guess, about the, quote, self-care scenes. Um, <laughs> what was up with the, I was kind of confused about the, she was using like an egg-shaped timer when she was doing that. Like, did you understand that? Um, I so, you know, again, forgive me my novice uh, movie watching skills. <laughs> I, I feel like she had such a routine and she had exactly so much time to do all her tasks that she wanted to take care of business before the eggs were done. <laughs> oh, was okay. She, boiling, she was boiling eggs for her lunch. That's true. Yeah. 
Uh, and we mentioned this already, but, um, you know, in this opening, I mean, part of the reason why this opening is so wonderful is that I started this movie. And when I talk about the opening, by the way, I mean, I'm not so much talking about the weird dream. Like, I mean, it's beautiful. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But the opening of the movie, like the very first scene is like Giles kind of like introducing you to the story. Like he starts narrating, you know? Um, and telling you about the princess. And that's another reason why this movie is perfect for this podcast, because it is very much like a dark fantasy story. It even goes to the extent of the narrator, which is Giles, of course, calling Sally a prince and Amphibian Man a prince, or Sally a princess and the Amphibian Man a prince, you know? Um, and there are definitely some parallels between this movie and Beauty and the Beast, which we'll talk about. Uh, so yeah, it's it's... I think it's another reason why it's perfect to talk about this uh, movie on this podcast, because it is very much a fairy tale in a lot of ways. Um, Agreed. Yeah. But you have that opening scene of Giles, like, narrating. He's starting to tell the story as we see, like, this dreamlike sequence of Sally living in both a... It's a human world, but also... Or not Sally. <laughs> uh, Eliza. Eliza. Yeah. <laughs> Eliza living in, like, this human world, um, but it's completely underwater you know i don't think that that opening sequence ever actually happened i think that's just like a it's like a um it's just like a like guillermo being really artistic and saying like this is kind of what the themes of the movie are going to be you know like it's not a literal scene i don't think um what do you think about that like the the, the very very opening um with like you know giles is narrating as we're seeing like sally flip why do i keep saying that eliza <laughs> Like, she's, like, floating underwater. Um, you know, like, the apartment is completely underwater. Um, I don't think that literally happened, do you? Um, no, but I feel like what we're going to talk about later, where maybe she was a fish person, um, maybe her dreams are sorting through her past that she doesn't quite remember when she was a baby or a uh, kid. Ah, yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, because that's the thing, too, like... I mean, maybe we are supposed to see that as actually having happened, but it's a dream. Um, yeah. I just assumed, I like the idea better that it's a dream. I just assumed that this is like a kind of like a disconnected prelude where it's just Guillermo having fun with visuals, you know, like we're kind of getting an idea, like a teaser of what the themes of this movie are going to be. But I kind of like the idea better that it was actually a dream she was having. In fact, well, now that I think about it, sleeping? I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> actually, I think, yeah, it, it was a dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, the main point that I want to make here is that that's not the opening I'm talking about. The opening that I'm talking about here is like, yeah, after she wakes up and we see her morning routine and we get to know like you know, just what her day looks like every single day. Um, there's a piece of music playing. I believe it's called Eliza's theme, I think. Um, and the music in this movie is just so beautiful. It was one of the first things that stood out to me. And you could just tell, like, even in this opening sequence, even in this opening sequence where all really the main purpose here, and this ties into what I was saying earlier about this very much definitely being a passion project, even though the main purpose here is really just to kind of familiarize the viewers with Eliza and who she is as a character, it's still so beautifully shot. And you can tell that like every single shot was meticulously planned and was meant to stand as its own. Like this is truly such a beautiful movie. There are so many scenes in this movie 
where you could screen cap it and wow, what a beautiful scene. What a beautiful image. What a beautiful picture. You know, it's just, it's such an artistic movie and you can tell that every single shot mattered, every single camera angle, every single, uh, the way that things were framed was deliberate. Like you could tell that just so much care was put into this movie and the score really helps create that feeling. It's just, it, it fits perfectly with the sound or not the sound, the sound of the music, the sound of the score fits perfectly with the themes of the movie um, because for one thing, you can hear what I, I always have trouble pronouncing this, um, even though it's one of my favorite instruments, but I think it's Tierman. It's an instrument that like, if you watch like old sci-fi movies from like the fifties and sixties, you'll often hear it in the score. It's got that warbly, like, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 yeah you can hear that instrument being used in the score. And I love that because it takes you back to, it reminds you that this is inspired by a fifties movie, you know? Um, and it also kind of has like an aquatic watery sound to it. You know, you listen to the score and you kind of can imagine yourself in the water as a like mermaid or a, you know, a amphibian man, or, you know, it's just got like a watery feel to it. I just can't praise this music enough. It's so beautiful. Uh, I love the theme song too, and I, and I can't explain why the haunting whistle is so perfect. Yeah, that's it what I was just talking me, about. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of Twin Peaks. Like you don't know why it works; it just really does. The music from Twin Peaks, um, it's unusual, but yet it's perfect. And uh, Desplat did such a such an amazing job. And then I contrast this with um, some of the scary, humorous music from Creature from the Black Lagoon, like all those horns going. Rah! <laughs> Like, it's supposed to be scary, but it's actually kind of funny. <laughs> well, yeah. And the funny thing is, I mean, part of that is because it's dated, you know, like it's from yeah. the 1950s. So they didn't really, I don't know. They just didn't have the experience to know. I don't know. It's just people didn't have as wide. It's kind of hard to explain, but people didn't have as wide of a repertoire of what movies yeah. could do. And so they didn't have as strong of a frame of reference. So that might have been effective then, you know. And it might have just been, what can we do to make people jump out of their seat? I did appreciate, especially since, like, I kind of did have it stuck in my head um, for a couple of days after. But, like, after watching the creature from the Black Lagoon, like, every single time they showed you, like, the creature's, like, hand coming up from the water onto the land. Yes. Yeah, it would do this. Do, 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 you know, and that did get stuck in my head for a couple of days. So it was effective in a way, (laughs) you know. You know, and it's not as scary as the music from Jaws. (laughs) No, no. Um, and didn't, you know, speaking of Jaws, didn't the captain uh, from the uh, boat, uh, the Rita, and the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon, didn't he kind of resemble Quint from Jaws? I know it's kind of a random aside. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Uh, but circling back to the very opening that I was just talking about a little while ago with Giles kind of narrating and giving us an idea of what the story is going to involve... Uh, He says, you know, he refers to the story as, quote, a tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. And as soon as I heard that, I had an idea where they were going with this, that they were going to paint this as the monster, the creature from the Black Lagoon is not really the monster here. You know, like because I had a feeling as soon as he said that, okay, the love story here is between most likely 
Eliza and uh, Amphibian Man. Because one thing you have to keep in mind, I don't think I mentioned this yet. I had not seen this movie before. So in preparation for this podcast, this was my first time seeing it. And that really did make this a lot of fun. Like, I'm going to have to do that more often because it was a lot of fun, like, sharing, like, documenting my thoughts as I was watching this and having them be completely fresh without knowing what was coming, you know, without knowing what was going yeah. to happen. It definitely created for a much more exciting experience. And so I'm going to have to do that more often, watch some movies for this podcast that I haven't seen before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I heard that and I was like, I bet you anything because Eliza and the amphibian man, I think are supposed to be the couple in this movie. And so the monster that he's referring to here is a human that is going to end up being the real villain. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens, right? Um, he is not like the monster that he refers to in this opening is not amphibian man, right? Definitely not. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> although I already alluded to it <laughs> when I said his name, uh, but yeah, like, I suspected as soon as I heard that, that like similar to stories like Beauty and the Beast, Frankenstein, a lot of classic uh, gothic stories dive into this theme of monster versus human. You know, like, uh, do we as humans have monsters within us? You know, like, can people that we see as monsters actually be, you know, like, like there's a line from a Neil Gaiman poem, Instructions, um, and I'm probably not quoting it verbatim, but it's something to the effect of like, remember that dragons have one soft spot always, you know? And uh. yeah. And it's just this reminder that sometimes people that we see as monsters are actually misunderstood. And that if we got to know them better, we'd realize that they actually do have a heart. And that's one of the themes of this movie. You know, the amphibian man is scary. He bites a man's fingers off. Uh, but that's not actually, you know, we're not getting the whole picture yet, you know? Um, and so it reminded me of things like Beauty and the Beast and Frankenstein, where one of the themes of Frankenstein is definitely which one of these characters is the monster and which one is the man. Is the creature right. the monster and Frankenstein the man or the other way around, you know? And Beauty and the Beast does the same thing. Like, the Beast is hideous on the outside because he's a he looks monstrous, but he actually has a heart of gold underneath all of that. Gaston is traditionally attractive and gorgeous, but he's evil. You know, he's he's selfish and misogynist and uh, violent. And, you know, he's not really the it's not really the beast that is the monster. So anyway, this movie deals with a very similar theme, and I really appreciated that. Um, I really love the line from Giles uh, where he describes the fire that happened at the chocolate factory. Uh, tragedy and delight, hand in hand. <laughs> it's kind of at the five-minute mark, but it almost certainly describes how the movie uh, goes and how the story of Eliza and the creature kind of pans out. Yes, absolutely. I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, especially because I knew at that point, I usually watch things with subtitles, and so the opening sequence in which he's narrating told me that it was Giles narrating. And so then like, in, uh. <laughs> yeah. And so then like in this scene, when I know that it's the same character talking, I'm like, oh, he's probably still dropping little hints about the movie and what we can expect. And yeah. So as soon as I heard that tragedy and delight hand in hand, I was like, I bet you anything that's like, you know, just I love it when movies do that, when there's like lines of dialogue that kind of have multiple layers to them. You know what I mean? 
Like he's yeah. talking about that fire, but he's also talking about the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's also talking about our lives. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I mentioned before how like this movie, just every shot is beautiful. Um, every shot you can tell was deliberate and meticulous. And one of the things that I almost immediately noticed, I think that it really, really started to hit me when Elsa's waiting for the bus. Um, she's like sitting on a bench outside and she's waiting for the bus to come. But like, I have never seen such a green movie in my life before. <laughs> there is so much green in this movie. Like nearly every single shot is a wash with it. A little bit of teal too, but it's mostly green. And like the bus that ends up picking Eliza up is green. And there's like, I think like a green light behind her. She's almost always throughout the movie wearing some sort of shade of green. So is Zelda. Um, the walls of the lab are green. The creature obviously is green and teal. And uh, so much of Eliza's home is green. It's just, I have never seen so much green in a movie before. And it's even mentioned in the dialogue. Like um, there's a scene where, Giles is uh, an artist and it seems like, I don't know, it, it, not a whole lot of information was really provided about what it was that he did before. It seems like he was some sort of uh, like his art was used in like marketing and advertising and stuff like that. I think, is that the vibe that is that correct? Do you think? Yeah, it was kind of confusing. I, I wish they would have elaborated because I couldn't tell, like it, I felt like they were hinting that he was an alcoholic and I was like, well, was he on the job and kept coming in drunk and they made him quit or was it that's how they put gay people in a box like oh he's eccentric because he's an alcoholic you know what i mean right it's just it was conf confusing right um yeah so it's never really explicitly stated i don't think but i got the vibe that at some point at one point because giles is an artist he's like always sketching and painting in his apartment like always mm -hmm. Um, while he has old movies on, although they wouldn't have been old then because it, yeah, <laughs> um, takes place in 62 from what I've read. But um, yeah, he's like, he's an artist. And the vibe that I got was that he used to like sell his art. He used to work for like a marketing company or something that used his art in their advertising because he makes a painting of like a family eating jello, like eating gelatin. Um, and tries to bring it to this guy that he knows at this company. And there's this tense dialogue between them where Giles says something like, you know, I'd like to come back. And the guy says, you know, we'll talk about it. But you can tell that what he means is, no, that's not going to happen. Um, so anyway, that's a little off topic. The point is, um, there's dialogue in this scene where he has painted a picture of a family like eating gelatin. And the gelatin in the picture is red. And he gets feedback from this guy that he knows. And this guy says, you know, they want the gelatin to be green. That's the future now. Green. <laughs> yeah. So it's even like directly in the dialogue. And then there's another scene where Strickland um, buys a new car. It's very clearly a teal color. Like to me, it was much more blue than it was green. But it had like a little tiny, you know, tinge of green in it. But it was mostly teal. Um, but he says that it looks green to him. You know, he says uh, something along the lines of like, you know, uh, not sure how I feel about that shade of green or something like that. And then the car salesman is like, oh, well, that's teal. And Strickland's like, well, it's green to me. But yeah, there's just even in the dialogue, there is so much green 
talked about, referenced, seen in the the shots. And like I said, I've just truly never seen a movie so green before. <laughs> um, I think the green and teal is just so beautiful. And it's kind of funny. It's, it's almost treated like black and white, even though it's not. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking back to the creature from the Black Lagoon, um, where even though it's black and white and that seems plain, it actually looks very lush. Um, because depending on what's going on in the movie, it can look like splashes of silver or white mm-hmm. um, with the special effects that they did. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and I, I also noticed that color played a big part in Eliza's development. Like we see more color coming into her life when she starts getting more brave and starts fighting for what she wants. You know, suddenly she has a red scarf and a red headband. And uh, around the time when she starts looking in the Colonel Strickland's eyes and standing up to him. Oh, yeah. Like, I know, love that. The scene. color, the color is coming into her world. Yeah. And I, I love that scene so much because it's like she's using her disadvantage, I guess, like her inability to speak. Like she's using that to her advantage and telling him exactly what she wants to tell him, but without consequences because he doesn't understand her. You know, like I, <laughs> I love the yeah, irony. It's almost of that. more powerful. Yes, exactly. Powerful. Yeah. Like I'm using the thing that you, uh, you know, you, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you kind of like other somebody because of a difference? Like it's almost, it's almost like he berates her. Yes. For her yeah. Dis- that's a good for her word. Disability. Yes. Um, I'm but using the very thing that you berate yeah. me for against you, <laughs> you know? And I mean, he's not, he's, he's very despicable and evil, but he's not stupid. And I think he does know that she's insulting him because he insists like, what is she saying? What is she saying? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I didn't think that he quite bought it when, <laughs> when Zelda was <laughs> like, you know, she's saying, thank you. Like, I don't think he bought that. I kind of like the power shift and then maybe that was the first moment. Like he's had the upper hand this whole time and now suddenly she's using sign language and you don't know what she's saying. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yep, exactly. Um, And I mean, yeah, I mean, cat's out of the bag. I think I've already hinted at this, but <laughs> I don't say cat. Don't say cat. Oh yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Yeah. Uh, I instantly just as soon as soon, and this just goes to show you that, you know, these characters knew exactly who they were playing. Like, the second that this character comes on screen, I know who he is, you know? And I instantly hated him. It really doesn't help that Michael Shannon has one of those faces. Like, he he just has a hateable face. And I don't mean that, I'm sure he's a wonderful guy, so I don't mean that as any insult toward him. <laughs> but he just has the type of face where, yeah, you're going to make a good villain. You're going to play a good villain, you yeah. know? Um, there are some actors like that, that they just have, uh, you know, they have that appearance about them. And yeah, almost every movie I've seen him in, he plays um, like some sort of untrustworthy or villainous person. And I think that's why he just has that face, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you catch that? And maybe this is me reading into things, but, you know, when you watch a movie a couple of times, you know, as, as terrible, sexist, racist, sadistic that Strickland is, um, did it almost seem like they were making it seem like his son might be being portrayed as very effeminate? Um, because he dotes over his dad, he helps at the breakfast table, and kisses his father on the cheek, and the sister doesn't. And the, those kids are actually my parents, probably my parents' age. 
And there's no way that the son would be the one setting the table in my mom's upbringing. It would always be the daughter. Yeah. So I just thought, I thought that was like, you know, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it seems very unlikely that, especially in that time period that um, it's a really good point because I don't think I would have, I didn't really give it any thought. Maybe it's because like, I'm just so much more used to seeing, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget when you're watching a modern movie that it's set, you know, decades ago. And so, like, I'm so much more used to seeing, um, because things are fortunately changing, you know, and we're seeing these uh, gender roles and whatnot being deconstructed a little bit, you know, at least compared to what they were probably like in 1962. So I'm much more used to seeing things like um, male characters being affectionate and, you know, kissing each other on the cheek and, uh, you know, doing, quote, womanly things like cooking and setting the <laughs> table and stuff like that. I'm used to seeing that. So I think that that's why I didn't really give it much thought. But you're absolutely right that, yeah, it seems unlikely, especially with Strickland being the way that he is. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Strickland especially, it seems like he would have really made sure that that kid was being manly and masculine and um like so he yeah would have yelled, he would have yelled at the wife for letting him do those things um and which just proves he's he's almost like blissfully unaware of what his family life is like because he's a climber yes he's a climber and you can tell that you know i think that and this is part of the reason why i really can't stand him i mean there are many reasons why i can't but one of the many reasons why i can't stand him is you can tell that he doesn't really care much about any of those people like he doesn't really yeah. love them you know he's so disconnected from them um he has a family because he's supposed to because that's what right. is expected of a man i also i don't remember exactly when it was i think it was I think it was probably at the the uh the restaurant the diner the first time that they're there that I know that I that I like really started to question this suspect it but it was pretty early on in the movie that I was suspecting that Giles was probably gay um and there's a pretty decent amount of innuendo throughout the movie and one example of this I mean I picked up on this right away it probably helps that you know um I am gay too. So like, I know exactly like I, I could kind of like identify with how Giles was feeling in this scene, you know? Um, but especially there's a scene in the movie where, uh, it's again, it's their first time going to the diner to get pie, which by the way is a bright green key lime pie, more green. <laughs> uh, but you know, he's looking at the guy who works at the diner and he says something about the pies being tantalizing, but, you can tell by like the look on his face and his tone and the way that he's staring at this guy that he's not talking about the pies. <laughs> <laughs> so that was when I was like, Oh, okay. I think this character might be gay. Um, you know, which, uh, circling back to what we were saying before about him, uh, you know, apparently being out of work and struggling and being in poverty because whatever it was that he did do, he was let go from, I think that probably, I think we're supposed to maybe interpret that that's why that um, somebody maybe, uh, I don't know, like, it seems like he might have been outed at work, and that's why yeah. he was fired. That's the impression I got. I agree. Yeah. But um, the scene later on, uh, when he does finally, because sure enough, it's, I wasn't, 
I wasn't just queering the text. It was there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He definitely was flirting with him. Uh, There's a scene later on when he does finally make a move. He tries to hold the man's hand and say something like, you know, I'd really like to get to know you better. And uh, that was really hard to watch because that's not, I guess, again, sometimes I just get so used to more modern day stories like Heartstopper and stuff where, you know, I'm hopeful that um, it's going to go in a good direction. Um, For some reason, I expected this to go well for him and it does not. Um, And it's really hard to watch. Um, We see, you know, and I think they did this deliberately. Like, I think Guillermo del Toro wrote this deliberately where we can see because the guy at the shop does kind of sort of like it's hard to tell you can't really tell for sure if he's just being friendly or if he's flirting back you know it's kind of hard to tell at first the and 1962 I, gaydar is, is yeah, very tricky <laughs> yeah and i think that it was like probably intentionally um like unclear at first because it's not until giles makes that move that we find out for sure oh this guy is a royal pos you know like because not only does he react, you know, in an incredibly homophobic way, you know, but then in that same scene, we get some people of color come into the store and he basically kicks them out. So he's clearly also racist. Um, So this guy that we thought was really nice, but I also, again, I think that might have been deliberate because that was probably like commonplace behavior in 1962. That was how most people probably were. They would seem nice as long as you were, uh, you know, a straight white guy. They'd be nice, you know? Well, I wonder if that um, that gentleman, well, I shouldn't say gentleman, I wonder if he was really gay and just was so scared that he protested too much and then and then did that racist thing kind of as a cover. Possibly. Yeah, I wondered that too. Like, I initially thought, like, oh, this is one of those sad stories where if only this were set in 2023, this might happen for them. But because it's 1962, he's also closeted. So he's going to pretend to be hateful. Like I had that thought, but then like once he was racist, I was like, Oh no, he's probably just a POS, but you're right. It could be that that was just like further deflection, you know? Well, and there are, there are racist gay people, unfortunately. Oh yeah, I know. I, I shouldn't, (laughs) I shouldn't group, uh, you know, I shouldn't do that. Um, because you're you absolutely right. Not. You want to hope there's not. But yes, unfortunately, you're absolutely right. Um, I do sometimes make the mistake of like thinking, oh, this person is a person of color, so they're probably an LGBTQ ally. Or this person is gay, so they're probably not racist. You know, I sometimes make that assumption because you would think that somebody who has experienced oppression themselves would have empathy for other people who do, who have. Um, and the misogyny uh, that Eliza and Zelda had to endure it was just so hard to watch i mean yeah the women had were forced to always be the help um and even in a top secret area you know <laughs> they're still treated poorly yep and and similarly in creature from the black lagoon and you know that k uh um k, k lawrence is shown, shown as this strong and intelligent woman yet she still is the one doing the screaming and the tripping and the fainting and the you know help me help me <laughs> yeah and it's funny because like as I was watching that movie, that was initially one of my points of uh, praise for it was I was like, it's kind of cool how like Kay is kind of just like one of the guys. She's not really being treated differently. She's just a scientist that's a part of this team like all the other guys are. But then as the movie progresses, you start to see that fall apart when they're like, 
oh, well, this is going to be dangerous. We don't want to bring a woman into this, you know, like, right. Yeah, I was like, oh, well, so much for that. I thought they, <laughs> I thought they were doing something a little different, but. <laughs> and um, I pulled this from the trivia, but I thought it was still important because um, it helps me overlook some of the plot holes. Um, Octavia Spencer has said that some of her favorite things about this movie is that the main couple is mute and most of the dialogue comes from a black woman and a closeted gay man. And um, these people definitely would have experienced such extreme oppression uh, during the time period. And so seeing their stories play out, that really drew me in. And so, you know, any potential flaws of the movie, I'm, I'm just not seeing because of how well they play the story. And um, there's there's even conservative themes woven through the black creature from the Black Lagoon, like in the beginning, the huge preachy reference in the beginning, like God created the heaven and earth. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, and then the, I, I don't remember who says it, but they say, aren't you two married yet? Uh, to David Reed and Kay Lawrence, like these people are brilliant scientists, brilliant doctors, and yet all the guy can say is, "Aren't you married?" Definitely very 1954, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I completely agree. Um, you know, I mean, I, I it didn't really bother me too much, just because, again, like I said, it's a 1954 movie. It's one of those things where, like, okay, I'm gonna go back and I'm going to watch this really old classic movie. And I'm really just going to, you know, experience this as like a, I don't know how to explain it. Like, this is just, it's not my world, you know, like. Right. I'm going to watch it like an observer. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm able to watch Peter Pan. And even though it still does make me cringe and I hate it, I'm still <laughs> able to enjoy that movie, even though it's wildly, wildly racist against natives. Like it's disgustingly racist. Yeah. Um, it even like when you bring it up on Disney plus, it even shows you a little message beforehand, you know, like we apologize for the content in this movie. It's not right. Should have never been in there, but we believe that it's better to, you know, show it as an example of what not to do rather than, you know, destroy it. And I agree with that. I, you know, we have to understand that these things are products of their times. I don't think it's right to, you know, uh, cancel them and pretend they don't exist and shame people for enjoying them. Like they're products of their time. You have to understand that it's not right, but people had different standards back then. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm hopeful for humanity. I think that again, I'm hopeful. I know that we still have a long, 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 long way to go, but I'd like to think that humanity is slowly progressing and evolving and getting better. I mean, you look at, Social standards, I'm getting a little off topic here, but um, earlier this week was National Coming Out Day, and the campus where I teach was like totally celebrating it. They had rainbow stuff all over. They were giving away free pronoun buttons. Um, they had like LGBT stories on the walls where you could read people's coming out stories, and it was just such oh, a beautiful nice. thing. And I feel like 30 or 40 years ago, a college campus never would have had anything like that. Never, you know? And if they had, people would have like rioted, you know? So I think that overall we're progressing, we're getting better. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm able to look back at an old movie that has some problematic issues and be like, okay, but I think we've improved a little since then. Like, you know, we can, we can learn from this. Like it's kind of like a, uh, like a snapshot of how far we've come. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's, there's value in seeing the evolution. Yes, absolutely. 
Yes. Um, but I believe that I even read somewhere that uh, Del Toro and Michael Shannon actually had a conversation about Strickland and agreed that the way that he was going to be played was basically that, you know, he would have been the hero of the movie if the movie were made in the 1950s. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because in a lot of ways, yes, but also I think that out of all of the characters, and I'll talk about this more later on, but I think that out of all of the characters in the creature from the black lagoon that he resembles the most, um, it would be Mark and Mark is kind of an antagonist in that movie, you know, like not to the extent that the creature is, but he's kind of like a side villain, like a side antagonist. So I see where they're coming from. And I agree because he's really like in this movie, the major difference between how he's presented in this movie and how Mark is presented in the creature from the black lagoon, aside from the fact that Strickland is way, 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 way worse, (laughs) like way worse. Um, Aside from that, um, Mark is also part of a team that has a similar like goal. It's just kind of like they have different ideas about how to go about it, but they have the same ultimate goal. So uh, with The Shape of Water, though, he's not really part of a team. He's kind of a one man army, you know? Yeah. So I think that's the biggest difference. But I yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful observation is, you know, yeah, I mean. And it's all about, that's one of the purposes of this movie. It's kind of similar to like Maleficent and Cruella and things like that in that way. Like, what if the villain wasn't really the villain? You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned in the last episode, in The Nightmare Before Christmas, how I really like when fairy tale romance stories draw parallels between two characters who will eventually end up together. They show like subtle ways um, that they're alike in their differences like i always really appreciate that irony i mentioned how we see it in aladdin the original well i guess the live action one as well but i didn't think that one was very good um (laughs) the animated aladdin uh you know we see that aladdin is uh you know he's he's destitute he's poor he struggles he steals food to survive uh he's completely impoverished you know um and he wants more like he wants more out of life he feels trapped in that position Jasmine is on the polar opposite end of the spectrum. She wants for nothing. She's royalty. She lives in a beautiful palace, um, but she also feels trapped. And so that's kind of how they connect is they kind of meet in the middle. And then the live action Little Mermaid did the same thing. I say live action because it was much more strongly emphasized in the live action version by giving Eric more of a backstory and fleshing his character out. Uh, But Eric is landbound, like his mother refuses to allow him to go out into the water like she won't allow him to travel but he feels drawn toward the water he feels a pull toward the water even though he's forbidden from going to the water and then uh ariel is the opposite of that she's water bound and she is intrigued by the land and so that's kind of like what you know they they complement each other in that way they meet in the middle they're like a perfect storm you know Um, Jack and Sally are the same way. And the point that I'm getting at is that I think that this movie is doing something very similar with uh, Eliza and the amphibian man, Um, because there are so many situations throughout the movie where there are parallels being drawn between them. Like even in the opening scene, when we kind of see Eliza's routine and, you know, what it is that she does every single day, it seems to me like I got the vibe that her favorite part was always the bath. Like she loved getting into the water, 
You know, I'm not talking about because she was taking care of herself. I don't mean that. I mean that um, she seemed to love getting in the water, you know? Um, ah, good point. Like yeah. Recharging. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in this movie, Zelda even is like giving Eliza's backstory by telling uh, Strickland about her. That's when we learn that her last name, Esposito, means orphan, which means that that probably is not her last name by birth. Like, it's probably like a Game of Thrones situation where, you know, like, if you're a bastard, your last name is Snow. If you're, you know what I mean? Um, It's probably yeah. a situation like that where somebody named her that because she was literally an orphan. Uh, anyway, Zelda says that, quote, they found her as an Eliza by the river in the water. And this, of course, shows that she has always had a connection to water ever since she was little. But I immediately thought as soon as we see the scars on her neck that they looked like gills. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool touch. Like they're drawing this parallel between her and the amphibian man because they kind of look like gills on her neck and all these little connections being drawn, you know, parallels. And of course, I think that was absolutely deliberate where those marks were supposed to look like gills. Um, Screen Rant uh, posted a theory about that online where, where they said Eliza is probably a fish creature. And um, while we assume in the movie that her injuries on her neck um, were were something that severed Eliza's vocal cords and left her unable to speak, um, we're led to believe, well, maybe those weren't cuts that, that the doctor sewed up, but instead they were gills that they mistook for wounds. Ah, uh, I like that theory. I really like that. And then at the conclusion of the film, when Eliza and the creature are fully immersed in, in the river after being shot, the creature is able to heal them both, not only his gunshot wounds, but also healed or released her gills in the process. So I really like that. My mind is blown because honestly, <laughs> I assumed that like because of that ending scene, I assumed that, oh, like not only is he capable of healing people, but he can even like he's really magical. Like he can even give people gills, you know, like uh... that's what I thought. And I love that so much better that no, actually he was she already had gills and he was healing them. I love that. Yeah. I do kind of have mixed feelings about that if that is the case, because um, I kind of like the idea of uh, these two characters being like they're different species even, you know, mm -hmm. and yet they still connect. They still yeah. I think there's something beautiful about that because there's a message there. And, you know, because I've seen people, even though this movie is very beloved, um, like we've already mentioned, it has won an Academy Award. In fact, I think it won more than one. I know it won like the picture of the year like that's the big one that's the the you know like the number one movie of the year according to the academy i think it won that uh but i think it might have won a couple of other things as well like smaller ones but anyway um beloved movie that a lot of people seem to really consider a work of art myself included i'm so glad i watched it and um but i've also seen some people complain here and there that oh well i don't really understand why people love this so much it's basically just a what's that word like zoophilia when oh, like yeah it's like a it, it's a word for people who i mean there's another word for it too bestiality um, oh i see what you're saying yeah like um there were people criticizing that you know it's basically just glorifying bestiality and um but here's the thing like first of all i didn't really see it that way because that's kind of like even if that is the case even if she is human and always has been human and he has basically always been a fish person, you know, a, <laughs> a, uh, a gill man, a whatever you want to call him. Um, even if that is the case, it's a fairy tale. 
um look at beauty and the beast you know right <laughs> well i mean you, you know a lot of female co-workers that liked twilight kind of checked out when uh jacob black was attracted to yeah <laughs> the young girl yeah and it's like you know at what point do you say well that's enough i can't tolerate that because it's all fantasy right 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 yeah um but at least in in this i feel like there's some consent that makes it better <laughs> absolutely yes absolutely um and we see like we haven't really talked about this and i feel like we should um you know we see like pretty early on that he is very clearly capable of understanding language and emotions and right. uh he feels things you know um and i think that what we're meant to take from that is that you know he's really not all that much different i mean he does have a little bit of a as we'll talk about shortly unfortunately he does have a little bit of a wild streak to him but yes that's also because he doesn't really understand humanity he's never really been around us he doesn't understand our customs like you know he uh, has instincts. He has yes, instincts exactly. Too. He has instincts that haven't been checked. Like humans have instincts too, but we're taught to rein them in, you know? Right. Um, he hasn't been taught that. So um, it's, it's a situation where it's like, I do think he probably has just about the same level of sentience and emotional intelligence that humans do. Um, which means it, we might assume not because he can't communicate like we do, but neither can Eliza, you know? Right. That's one of the things that connect them. So, but the fact that she's like able to almost instantly teach him sign language, I mean, he might be smarter than me. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> like <laughs> I couldn't learn that that quickly. So she teaches him sign language very quickly. Um, I think teaches him the word for egg, the word for friend. Does, he, does she teach him music, the word for music, I think? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And you can tell like when she plays that music that he's like truly experiencing it and having an emotional reaction to it. And, um, so yeah, it's like clearly, you know, even if they are of different species, they're both, it's sort of like, to me, it's like similar to like, let's say for example, that, uh, in star Wars, a, uh, a human character, like, you know, someone like Luke or Ray or somebody, you know, a human character, um, were to fall in love with like a Twi'lek you know, or a, uh, a Zabrak or, you know, another humanoid species in the star Wars universe. Is that bestiality? Right. You know? <laughs> um, so it doesn't, I, I don't see it as bestiality. I really don't. They're both humanoid. Even if she is human and he's a fish man or whatever, they're both humanoid beings of similar, uh, emotional intelligences and which could also very well be making Now that I think about it, maybe one of the, the, uh, the social commentaries that are being made there is, you know, um, especially back in 1962, um, interracial marriage was not legalized right. everywhere yet. You know, um, interracial marriage, obviously same sex marriage, you know, that wasn't even, that wasn't legal anywhere in 62. Um, so there's probably some commentary being made there too, you know? And I think that if you're saying, oh, well, this story is kind of upsetting because it's bestiality. Well, you're missing the point, I think. Right. <laughs> or you're focused on the wrong points. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yep. Um, I, I really appreciate that um, the espionage subplot did not overpower the film and that it wasn't just the Russians or the bad guys. Um, I liked seeing Dr. Hostetler as kind of a, a good guy, a sympathetic anti-hero type character. Um, he really was genuinely interested in making sure the creature wasn't killed and uh, 
he helped shed light on showing that the creature was innocent. And um, I don't know, it was, I guess it was kind of like Angelina Jolie's version of Maleficent, you know, he helped reveal that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said earlier, this is kind of like the uh, the Maleficent movie or the Cruella movie of, you know, classic monster movies where we're kind of, I mean, not quite to the same extent, but because it really is more of like a loose interpretation of the creature from the Black Lagoon rather than, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's It's not yeah. quite to the same extent, but it is similar in that it's like, what if, like I mentioned earlier, the creature were just misunderstood, you know? Um, yeah, so I, I really, I like that, that parallel being drawn and, you know, I agree that they, uh, that I like that they didn't go too deeply into the espionage thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really, really liked Bob, um, slash Dimitri, like pretty early on, I was like, oh, he seems like a cool guy. And yeah, I totally love that they do that because normally, um, well, I shouldn't say normally, that's probably not fair, but a lot of times, you know, when you're looking at a movie that's set or a show that's set during the Cold War, like one of the Cold Wars anyway, I think we've had more than one. Like this one is set during a Cold War, but then like so is Stranger Things, you know, mm -hmm. um, in the 80s. So there's more than one. I think there was more than one, but um, probably not even a situation of there being more than one. It's probably more a situation that it's just really never ended. Um, yeah, I think just at which point is this happening in the Cold War? Right, right. Um, but anyway, yeah, we've got this tension between Americans and Russian. That's one of the elements of the kind of the, the, the backdrop of this movie. Um, and, you know, I feel like it's very rare that, you know, especially with, uh, well, actually, I don't actually know Guillermo del Toro's nationality. Do you? Uh, no, I do not. Yeah. I was going to say like, usually with American movies when they, um, present like russians during wartime they're just brutal and you know cold and calculated and have no humanity and yeah i just i i i love that they're really not doing that with bob you know like they're showing that no like there were really good people on both sides you know yes um and uh he ends up betraying his country basically to do the right thing and uh i had a feeling pretty early on that he was going to end up helping Eliza, that he was going to be instrumental in helping her, uh, you know, get Amphibian Man out of there. Uh, and then there's, you know, we're getting close to this uh, this unfortunate scene here. Uh, Giles is in the bathroom with the Amphibian Man after they have broken him out. Um, and, you know, they, they've uh, successfully orchestrated this grand escape. Um, and he is staying in... Uh, I was a little bit confused because... I mean, Eliza and Giles don't live together, right? They have different apartments. I wonder if he, if Giles has a big apartment and she subbuts from Giles. Oh, maybe that could be it. Yeah, because I was a little why confused. The, the landlord or the superintendent comes upstairs and yells at Giles when the when the bathroom is flooded. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I was a little confused. I was like. The bathroom that he's in, the bathtub that he's in, looked to me like the exact same bathroom and bathtub that we saw her taking a bath in early in the movie. But clearly that was Giles' apartment, though, because then when he escapes, when he gets out of the bathroom and, you know, attacks uh, Pandora, um, I was like, but that's Giles' apartment, though, because those are Giles' cats, right? So I was a little confused. I, I think Giles has a really big apartment. 
and I think she sublet some rooms. And so he was watching the creature while she was at work. So he, so Giles was in her bathroom. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That's, that makes that perfect my sense. Take. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So he's kind of like watching over amphibian man while he's staying in the bathtub. And he asks him, you know, have you always been alone? And I love this because it's another example of like, um, you know, just really cleverly written lines because I mean, it even kind of does get a little bit more heavy handed after that because he even says like, you know, when I look in the mirror, I, you know, he kind of does follow it up and make it very clear that he's also talking about himself. Yeah. Um, but it's just really beautiful how he is. Cause at first, you know, he's like completely resistant to this idea. He's like, no, that's wrong. It's illegal. We can't break him out. You're talking crazy. You know, uh, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Um, but he does come around and end up helping her. And you can tell that he ends up being grateful that he did, that he understands it, you know, and, yeah. Uh, he's very clearly empathizing with Amphibian Man here, you know, um, have you always been alone? You can tell immediately, even before he follows that up and makes it clearer that that is what he's talking about, you can kind of immediately tell that he's asking because he himself has always felt alone, and he's looking for ways to empathize with this creature. So I really love that, and I'll touch more upon that when I give my rating later on, um, but I just, I really love the themes of this movie. Uh but yeah, like we said, uh, unfortunately, poor Pandora. And you did um, give me kind of a trigger warning about this, so I knew it was coming. Uh, as soon as I saw that Giles had several cats, I was like, oh, because you had warned me that, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because and I'm glad you did, because uh, I do think that if I hadn't seen that coming, it really would have taken me by shock and um, it probably would have upset me. But because I kind of braced myself for it and knew it was coming, um it was softer. So I'm, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, because my thing is like, I love horror, like gore does not bother me at all, but I do have a very sensitive spot for like animals dying. And I especially really love cats. I have a cat of my own, um, that I love like a son. <laughs> He's like my child. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I do tend to be bothered by animal cruelty. In fact, I watched, um, she still teases me about this all the time. I watched uh, The Suicide Squad with my friend Michelle like a year or so ago. I think it was like last summer. Um, the second one with, uh, um, not not the one with the Joker, but the second one, The Suicide uh, okay. Squad. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know it's confusing because like the first one is called Suicide Squad and then the second one is called The Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> but The Suicide Squad is pretty graphic. It's pretty gory. There are some really gory deaths in it. And... The first gory scene in the movie is a bird being crushed and it's pretty bloody. There's, you know, and I, I watched the movie with her. It was my second or third time seeing it. And so I knew that scene was coming. And so I looked away and I was like, please tell me when this is over with. And she did. Um, but then there are like, you know, there are human deaths throughout the movie that are like 10 times worse than that. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, you know, eating my popcorn completely unfazed. And she's like, how is it that that bird death bothered you, but none of this does? <laughs> I'm like, that's I just mean, one animals, of my animals yeah. are just so innocent, you know. Absolutely, I just I have a very soft spot for animals. I hate seeing them harmed. I hate seeing them. Uh, yeah, it just really bothers me. So, um, yeah, but unfortunately, Pandora, he's one of, or I'm assuming actually probably she, because Pandora was a uh, 
a uh, female oh, yeah. character. Yeah. You're right. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Giles falls asleep in the bathroom and the amphibian man gets out of the tub and goes exploring around the apartment. He watches TV for a second and then he hears a cat roar at him, <laughs> hiss at him. And so his instinct is, oh, this cat is roaring at me. It's dangerous. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, and that's the thing too. Like I get the sense that he probably wouldn't have done that had Pandora not hissed at him. I think it was self-defense, you know, like I think his instant reaction was, oh, this animal is, is hissing at me, roaring at me. It's going to attack me. I better take action first. Uh, that was the sense that I got because he doesn't really pounce or do anything until after Pandora hisses, you know? Um, but anyway, yeah, he does kill Pandora. He like bites her head off. It's pretty graphic. Um, but you know, I do love that he tries to make up for it. You can tell after that he feels bad. Um, he tries to make nice with the cats. Of course, Giles isn't having it. Like, no, 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 no playing with the kitties. We're not doing that. We're not. <laughs> Does it almost sound like Austin Powers where they say, we don't gnaw on our kitty? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that um, that scene is at the one hour, 17 minute mark. So if you are squeamish like we are when it comes to animals, especially cats, skip past that part. <laughs> yes, yes. And like I've said before, this definitely is not a spoiler-free podcast. So if you're yeah. listening to this before watching the movie, you're going to be spoiled. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just in case, definitely a good thing to warn people of. Like I said, I'm really glad that you warned me of it. Um, the second I saw Giles' apartment and saw that he had all of those cats, I was like, "Oh, yeah, the amphibian man's going to yeah. eat one of them." <laughs> I wish I wish they could have done it differently because I think the point of that was just to show, hey, you, up till now, everyone thinks this creature is cuddly, but he is, you know, he has instincts to, to eat and to defend himself. Couldn't it have been like a rat or something? And, and it's, apologies to the rat lovers out there, but, you know, couldn't he have been seen by Eliza eating a rat in an alley or something? And then, you know, it would drive that point home that he is kind of an animal, too. But, you know, I think, too, that, uh, like I said before, I think one of the reasons why he, I mean, it was also to eat. It's even kind of like, uh, it definitely was also to eat because it's even kind of hinted at earlier in the movie when I think it's Bob that's giving Eliza instructions about, you know, how much salt should be in the water and, you know, basically how to, to take care of him. He has to eat pure protein. Yes. I think he's yeah, he says, and he's he's on a like a raw protein diet. So it was it was foreshadowed. It was hinted at. But I think it wasn't, like I said, I don't think it was just out of an instinct to eat. It was also self-defense. And it's unlikely that he would have felt threatened by a rat, you know? Right. So, True. yeah. But, yeah, um, it was hard to watch. Uh, fortunately, I have to tell myself, I have to remind myself, no cat was actually harmed. It's a movie. <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> um. But yeah, and I also love, like, in addition to him trying to play nice and befriend the other cats, you know, you can tell he feels terrible. Poor thing. Yeah. Um, he also, we don't realize it at first, although I did suspect it. Here's the thing. So we learn, I think it's in this scene that we see it for the first time, I think. But we learn that um, there are parts of his body that will, like, glow blue um, when he's healing something. And... So he he earlier injured Giles' arm pretty badly. He wounded him on accident as he was scared, you know, because 
he gets caught eating Pandora. Giles freaks out and he gets scared and runs away. Um, and on his way out, he accidentally like scratches Giles' arm. He's bleeding pretty badly. Um, but he makes contact with his arm, touches his arm, and parts of his body light up blue. And I had a feeling as soon as I saw that, that, oh, he's healing his arm. Like, I instantly suspected that. What I didn't realize, because he also makes contact with his head, and I assumed that, oh, well, he needs to, he needs to sort of like, I don't know if you're familiar with Star Trek at all, but like Vulcans like Spock, in order to do the Vulcan mind meld, they have to touch a certain part of yeah. your face. So I assumed, oh, he's touching his head because that makes more direct contact and he can heal easier. Um, but no, we end up finding out that he's touching his head because he's also giving him some hair back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, that was really cool. And this is kind of another parallel with the creature from the Black Lagoon that I think was very deliberate because, and this is another way that, like I said, the creature from the Black Lagoon does have a lot of early markings of a slasher film because you watch slasher movies like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, um, more modern ones like my favorite, Terrifier. And these villains are often like very, very, very difficult, if not impossible to kill. They keep coming back. You know, and that's another way that the creature from the Black Lagoon is very much an early slasher movie because they keep trying to take Gilman out with that um, spear gun, I think it is, that Mark has. Um, and he keeps somehow magically coming back. He seems unfazed by it. He comes back unscathed. Um, and so this was, I think, kind of like a shout out to that, imagining that it's because he had a healing ability. Um, I think one of the cool things is is they're changing as well as being healed. Like Eliza, when she's on the bus, you can see her moving water droplets kind of with barely touching them or just with her mind on the window. And then when Giles suddenly grows hair <laughs> and sign me up for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's cool to, it's just cool to see how they're kind of growing emotionally, changing emotionally, but also the creature is able to change them physically. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't really think of that. I kind of just assumed that, um, because there is like science behind, I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but there is like obviously a scientific reason behind um, hair loss. Like it's it's something to do with like your follicles dying or something like that. Like I don't know the, I don't know the, the, the exact science behind it, but it has something to do with like your follicles dying or something like that. And so I just assumed that, you know, whatever that is that's happening, that's causing your, your hair to be lost that the amphibian man was healing that you know um yeah but yeah i like that idea too that he also has the capability of like changing you physically i mean like i said i thought that's what was happening at the very end was that he was just mm -hmm. using his powers to give her gills um but i do i really like that that's kind of um like it's kind of up for interpretation like you can interpret that either way like you know, he used his magical healing ability to give her gills, or she already had gills and he was healing them. Like, I like right. how that's unclear. And I, and I think it's, and I know I'm digressing, but, you know, it's another way the director is saying, hey, there's not just two, one, one amphibian man. You know, there's a fish person like Eliza. There's a fish person like amphibian man from the Amazon. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. Um, and originally... Uh, I had originally planned to try to do this movie either before or after Luca, because I don't know if you've seen Luca, but it's about I have. I love you it. have. Yes. And there are some similar themes in that as well. Um, 
you know, of uh, this sea creature being misunderstood when in reality he's not really much different from humans, you know? Right. Um, so that had been my original plan. It's not going to happen because I don't think Luca is spooky enough really to do yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just like that. Like I said, I like that, that little nod to, yeah, the gill man kept coming back because he was able to heal himself. Yeah. Um, and I love the scene too of, uh, because Elsa, Elsa, Eliza makes this plan. <laughs> Eliza makes this plan to uh, to release him into the ocean, basically when it rains, because then I'm kind of probably like not quite getting the the exact details here correct, but I guess that like when it rains, the water level of the the body of water, like the harbor, or whatever it is near town, is going to rise, and so it'll connect to the ocean something to that effect. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so she makes this plan and, um, it starts raining, but she has kind of gotten to a point where she has fallen in love with him. So she's hesitant to let him go. Um, and there's a scene where, uh, it's raining really hard outside and he's kind of like looking outside the window in the apartment and it kind of seems like he's looking longingly out the window. Like he, wants to be out in the rain, you know? And so it's very clear that just from this little subtle uh, scene that he misses the water, you know? His E.T. phone home. Moment. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so maybe this is a good segue. Uh, what do you think of the flooded bathroom scene that happens at about one hour 30? Um, <laughs> plot device or plot hole? I, I agree that we need to take some leaps of faith when it comes to movies like this, but how airtight would a bathroom that was built in the 40s or 50s need to be to hold enough water to function as an aquarium? Yeah, I agree. It's a wonderful, beautiful scene, but it's very unrealistic, not only for that reason, but also that it seemed like to me, I mean, you can never really tell with movies because not everything happens in real time. It seemed to me like it filled up pretty quickly too yeah and that would have taken days that would have taken so long just based on water from the sink and the bathtub i mean it would have taken days for that room to fill up you know <laughs> and i feel like structurally if it really held that much water it would have just that whole bathroom would have just gone through the floor <laughs> exactly yeah it's not airtight enough yeah um right. so i agree it's a beautiful scene i love the imagery yeah. but it's not very realistic yeah no uh, but I mentioned the music earlier, primarily the score by Alexander Desplat, but also, you know, because this is a movie that's set in the early 1960s, you get a lot of like old, um, I don't even know what genre of music you would call it. Like, uh, maybe blues or, or, uh, I don't know. It felt, it felt uh, big band jazzy. Yeah. Yeah. Jazz. Uh, that's maybe? yes. I don't know. Yes. No, you're right. Jazz is what I was looking for. Uh, so yeah, there's like a lot of old, like jazz music from like the forties and fifties that you hear throughout the movie. Um, and I really love this because a lot of the music, like I said before, everything about this movie, you can tell was deliberate. Like everything was meticulously yeah. chosen. The world building was just beautiful. Like nothing was done all, you know, willy nilly in this movie. Everything had a purpose, you know? And one of the things that definitely plays a major role in the movie is the music. And again, I'm not just talking about the score. Um, there's a song that we hear in the movie and I looked it up and 
I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think it's a song that is actually from that time period. I think it's a song that was written for this movie, but that has that sound to it. I don't know if you were able to comment uh, on that. Do you know? I'm talking about You'll I, Never Know, the song that, yeah. yeah. I do think it may be of the time period, because um, I know Barbara Streisand covered it. Oh, okay. I looked it up, and all I could find was the Shape of Water soundtrack, but um, I guess I wasn't looking in the right place. <laughs> um, I'm looking, and it looks like it was out in 1943. Okay, so it is a real song. It is a real old song. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, but yeah, this song was definitely chosen deliberately. Um, like, I mean, there's even a musical number, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but there's a scene where, uh, Eliza, and it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, Eliza and the amphibian man are sitting across from each other at, uh, the kitchen table in the apartment. And she's starting to get emotional because she knows that she's going to have to let him go. Like she can't he can't stay there forever, you know? Um, and so she's getting emotional because she has fallen in love with him at this point, but she knows that they're not going to be able to be together. Um, and so there's a song playing in the background anyway. It's most likely something that Giles has on. Um, you'll never know. And the lyrics of this song are, and again, we're hearing this song playing as we realize that, you know, she's really starting to become like, she's really starting to grieve and, uh, you know, really lament the fact that they can't be together. And so this song is playing and the lyrics are, you'll never know just how much I miss you. You'll never know just how much I care. And if I tried, I still couldn't hide my love for you. You ought to know for haven't I told you so a million or more times. You went away and my heart went with you. I speak your name in my every prayer. If there is some other way to prove that I love you, I swear I don't know how. You'll never know if you don't know now. And so this song was obviously, you know, especially considering the fact that she then goes on to, in her mind, of course, sing it for real, um, definitely meticulously chosen. It's even on the soundtrack. It's on the the Shape of Water soundtrack. Um, because this song, because, uh, and that's one of the things that music does for us sometimes, is that, you know, she is nonverbal. She can't speak. So this is what she would say to him, but she can't right and so the music is kind of like doing that for her and that's one of the many beautiful things that music does for us is sometimes it helps us like sometimes if i'm going through a rough time i'll hear a song that i feel just like oh wow yeah this is exactly how i feel and it's putting it into so much better words than such better words than i could you know um and that's what we're seeing here is this music is speaking for her um and I love how, uh, you know, she then kind of like goes into this. Um, it is in a lot of ways, like I've said already, one of the reasons why um, it's definitely appropriate for this podcast, other than the fact that it is a Disney production technically, or at least owned by Disney. Uh, it's a perfect movie for this podcast because it is in a lot of ways a fairy tale. And fairy tales and fantasy stories oftentimes have musical numbers. So I really like that it's here. I loved it. Um, but yeah, like she has this like sequence play out in her mind where she's like suddenly in this like musical movie and she's dancing with the amphibian man and singing this song. You'll never know. And it's black and white. Uh, it's completely black and white. Um, I, I just love this scene. I, it's one of my favorite scenes from the entire movie. 
um, just absolutely love it. Uh, what are your thoughts on this scene? Did you uh, have a similar reaction to it? I did. I loved it. I thought the black and white ballroom scene was um, stunning. Um, it's like at the one hour, 39 minute mark if you anyone wants to fast forward to it. Yeah, so it's close um, to the end because this is about two yeah. hours long. Yeah. And I know it could be a showstopper for some people, but I've rewatched it several times and I'm really impressed because you do not see any weirdness with the creature suit it really looks it's it's like you always said every shot is just perfect and so i fully i fully believe the illusion i don't see an actor in a creature suit no no same i i never i was even trying to see doug jones like yeah and i couldn't i couldn't see him in some ways some people could argue that well that means that the actor isn't really important it's the costume that's important but no because you know, I think that I even was reading some trivia about this movie and we didn't end up including this in the trivia section, but I think I remember reading something about how like Doug Jones like trained extensively with his choreography yeah. to make to, you know, just to move in a in a kind of graceful humanoid but also not way, you know, like he really really put a lot of effort into his performance. So, um I don't think it could have been any actor, but I I feel like if you can't tell that it's Doug Jones, then some people might say that, oh, well, it's not really the actor that matters then. But I think, I think, you know, it definitely would have been a different amphibian man if somebody else had played him, I think. Del Toro did want to film this in black and white, and I think he was refused that. So I wonder if maybe he just snuck this in there, like, yeah, I don't know, just to make sure he at least got some element of it in black and white. And it's a callback to Creature from the Black Lagoon. Of course, which is in black and white, yeah. Right. So yeah, um, he was told no, no black and white. So he, uh, he, you know, he said F U C K Y O U with this little musical number. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I love when Eliza uh, gives the creature uh, a, a greeting card. I thought that was so sweet. And I'm a card guy. You know me. I'm a card guy. Um, and it says, "Glad to have you as a friend." And it was just so sweet. And and it's the perfect card because. It, when you see the film, it's this woman who kind of resembles Eliza holding this goldfish <laughs> in a bowl. And it's just so perfect, a perfect way to represent both of them. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, uh, they end up realizing that he seems to be getting sick. Amphibian man seems to be getting sick. Like I think his, uh, or his scales peeling or turning color uh, or something. Yeah, and I think he's got some blood coming through maybe too. Yeah, so he's starting to get sick because this isn't his environment. He needs to be in right. natural water. Um, and so Zelda comes over and sees him in this state and uh, says, like, okay, you've got to let him go now. Like, he's not going to survive much longer. And so they try to get Dimitri to help. And so Zelda tries calling him. And, of course, like, you know, this is such a I'm – not, I'm not insulting it or anything. It's used um, – for a reason, you know, because it helps move the story forward. But, uh, you know, this is such a, a movie and TV trope where she calls him, but it's too late. Like the yeah. phone rings like two seconds after he leaves the apartment, like <laughs> literally <laughs> like two seconds. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, Strickland does, um, catch on to what's going on. Like he realizes that, uh, Dimitri, and you can tell, like I said, he's not stupid. He's terrible, he's evil, but he's not stupid. Although, right. you know, to an extent, you know, although it makes sense that he wouldn't, you know, he doesn't suspect... Well, actually, 
that's the thing. He kind of does. And then he second guesses himself, right? I was going to say he doesn't suspect Zelda and Eliza, but he kind of does. That's why he questions them. And then he gets to a point where he says, why am I interviewing the help? You know, so yeah, he was suspecting them and then second guessed himself and was like, no, this is silly. They couldn't have done this. Um, it's his, it's his pride and arrogance, you yeah. know, bringing, him, bringing himself down. Yep. Um, so he does, uh, end up suspecting that, you know, cause the creature's been, been removed from the facility and he ends up suspecting that, uh, Dimitri slash Bob is responsible. And so he follows him and he does end up catching up with him. Uh, Dimitri had like a rendezvous with the Russians for his extraction, but they shot him instead because I think they realized that he had lied about killing the creature and had betrayed them. Um, so they, they shoot him and, uh, Strickland shows up as well and starts torturing Dimitri for information, wanting to know who was responsible for this, who was helping him. Uh, and, uh, Dimitri does, unfortunately, um, I don't hate him for it because he was under great duress. He was probably an excruciating agony. He does give it up. He, he tells Strickland that it was, it was Eliza and, uh, and Zelda, but Strickland is torturing him for information, and this scene really got me thinking about, I, I alluded to this earlier, this scene really got me thinking about some of the similarities between him and Mark, because, um, so in The Creature from the Black Lagoon, there's also definitely some, I mean, it was a little more, it was definitely a little more subtle because it was 1954, they couldn't get away then with what they can today, <laughs> but there's definitely some innuendo in that movie that I picked up on immediately, because there's kind of sort of like a love triangle in that movie where you have Kay and her boyfriend. Uh, what is his name? I can't remember. David. 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 Yes. You have Kay, her boyfriend, David. And then there's Mark. And there's these little hints dropped that Kay might have had some sort of fling or relationship with Mark at some point, but it didn't work out. Um, but he seems to still have feelings for her. So there's a little bit of a love triangle happening in that movie. And then, of course, when the creature comes into play, it becomes like a love square. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's a line where uh, there's a scene where David and uh, and Kay are like kissing. They're they're together on the top of the boat and they're making out They're kissing. And Mark shows up to interrupt. Right. And he's holding a uh, like a, a, a spear gun. And it's an incredibly phallic weapon, right? It's, <laughs> I, I don't think it's, it's accidental. Um, it's a very, very phallic weapon. And he describes it as follows. It's a very positive weapon, the spear gun, and easy to use. <laughs> All you do is aim it and squeeze. I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm reading too deeply into it, but I think that's meant to be double entendre, especially because he's interrupting, you know, he's, He's going into alpha mode right now, right? He's interrupting the two of them making out um, and basically, uh, you know, showing off. What's the term? Uh, there's a term. I, I, I don't remember what it is, but there's a term when like two men are like competing, trying to show which one of them is more masculine, you know, which one of them is more. Uh, it's like a. um like a, uh, a mating competition or something like that, you know? And, um, but that's exactly oh, what yeah. Mark is doing in this scene. And, you know, the, the spear gun is definitely, I think meant to be a stand in for something else. Um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <and> <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And it's the same with Strickland. Like his his go-to weapon is this cattle prod, which is also very, very phallic. Um, and he describes it earlier in the movie in the bathroom scene. Uh, that lovely dingus right there is an Alabama howdy do, molded grip handle, low current, high voltage electric shock cattle prod. So by telling her, you know, like you can look, but don't touch. And then calling it a dingus, like very clear that there's innuendo happening here that he's comparing this, this, uh, cattle prod to something else. Um, especially since he does end up going on to basically sexually harass her. Um, so it got me thinking about the similarities between these two characters, you know, that they both, Mark, uh, doesn't really care about the creature's life. Some of the other people on the expedition team want to keep him alive. Um, he wants to bring the creature back dead, you know, um, and it becomes very much like, a for him and he ends up paying for it, you know, with his life, it very much becomes like a, uh, Ahab and the whale sort of situation where he needs to hunt this thing down and kill it, you know? Um, and it's very similar, you know, this is a very similar situation where this becomes very personal for Strickland. Um, it becomes a revenge, uh, you know, scheme. Um, and he wants to kill the creature, even though, you know, we have other people like Dimitri that are trying to argue that, no, we can learn so much more about him from him being alive and, uh, so anyway, yeah, that's one of the many parallels between the creature from the Black Lagoon and the Shape of Water is the ways that, uh, you know, I think Strickland kind of parallels and represents Mark in some ways, including the, the phallic weapon that they, that they, uh, describe with some very obvious innuendo, in my opinion. Well, and those weapons, it's like, it's like, that's the only edge they have. And it, it's, you know, exactly the edge, you know? Yep, exactly. Because their masculinity is fragile um, right. you know, and like they say about, uh, sometimes when, when, uh, you know, really, uh, hyper-masculine guys have like really, really flashy sports cars, like, you know, they're compensating yes. for something, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, and, and Strickland really is the monster of the film and it's, you know, it never changes. <laughs> um, I mean, he continually demeans Eliza and Zelda and even sexually, I, I had forgotten, I, I saw it in my rewatch he sexually harasses Eliza, which I had forgotten about. It's awful. Yep. Um, he has no gratitude that they found his fingers that were severed when he had his first encounter with the creature. And all I can do is complain on the fact that they put his fingers in a paper bag. Like they saved your fingers <laughs> and all you're worried about is this paper bag. Um, it's all they had. And then um, the scene where he has sex with his wife, even though his injured hand is bleeding, it's like, come on. <laughs> respect your wife a little bit yeah buddy. for real yep um and and just the really racist and gross things like he tells zelda no siblings that's not common for your people yeah um and then he and he buys into the hype of the of the of the new cadillac uh four out of five successful businessmen drive a cadillac and you know of course that's all it took right <laughs> yeah yep that's all it took is okay well i want to be a successful businessman so yeah right. yep um, but yeah, and part of the reason why he, uh, he sexually harasses and hits on Eliza, I mean, this scene just really goes to show what a freaking scumbag he is because he yeah. even tells her, you're not very pretty, like <sighs> you're not very beautiful, but I want you. And earlier in the movie that's hinted at because the thing about Eliza obviously is as we've said multiple times, she's nonverbal, right? She doesn't speak. Right. 
And he literally like silences his wife during that scene that you were talking about when they're having sex. He covers her mouth and says, I want you silent. And so the fact that Eliza doesn't speak, that's the only thing that he likes about her is that, you know, in his mind, this is somebody that he can dominate because she can't defend herself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's disgusting. It's so, I hate this character so (laughs) much. (laughs) It's like die already. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And I was, I was definitely, I, I had a feeling like, because the thing is, I love the ending of this movie. I really do. Um, but I was worried for a while as to how it was going to end because, you know, like we said earlier, Giles says earlier in the movie, you know, that, uh, a tale of, of tragedy and delight. So I was like, there's probably going to be some horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, one of them is probably going to die or they're both going to die. So they're together in death. You know, like I was worried that we were not going to have a happy ending. Um, but we do, it's different than what I was expecting either way, you know, but, uh, because I, I certainly wasn't thinking in the back of my mind that it was going to be possible for her to live in the water with him. Like I, I did not think that was going to be possible. I figured if anything, and I'm glad they went the route that they did, but I figured if anything, they would figure out a way to make it so that he could survive on land. But then again, it's like, yeah, but what kind of life is he going to live? People are constantly going to want to lock him up and study him, you know? Or maybe she'd move away somewhere where there was a, a beach or a river or I don't know. Yeah. So I figured if there is going to be a happy ending, I don't think there is, but if there is going to be a happy ending, it'll probably be him living on land because they... They kind of hinted at that a little bit. I think it was meant to like lead you astray because earlier in the movie, they say that he is capable of breathing air and also uh, water, you know? Um, So I thought that they were going to figure out a way to kind of like deactivate the need for water and just, you know, um, have him live on land. Um, I'm glad they didn't go that route because this is, this makes so much more sense because throughout the movie, again, like we said earlier, she seems to have a draw to water. She seems to like water. And so, you know, it makes sense that, yeah, I, I just really like the the route that they went, but yeah, I mean, basically they have this final altercation with Strickland um, and he shoots uh, the amphibian man and then Eliza. Uh, and at first you think that they're both dead, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's when I was like, oh, like, really, they're going to let. Th-? And the thing is, I completely forgot, like, I completely forgot about how early in the movie, like, yes, Giles described him as a monster. But he did say, you know, this is a story about a prince and her prince or a princess and her prince. And the monster who tried to what was it? the What was the wording? The monster who tried to get in between or tried to ruin it or something like that. Drive but, them apart. Yeah, something like that. But keyword tried, you know, yeah. so. I should have known in the back of my mind, this isn't going to work out for him. But for some reason I forgot about that line. Um, (laughs) And so I was thinking, Oh man, he just killed him. Like, (laughs) you know, what a terrible ending. So, but you know, we see that no, the, the, uh, the amphibian man is able to heal himself from the gunshot wound. Um, Best scene of the movie kills Strickland. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, and this is still where I was like, oh, I'm not sure where this is going, because then he brings uh, Eliza's body into the water. And I was like, so 
is he just going to like create, like I thought he was going to make like a, like an underwater um, grave for her, something like that. Or, um, you know, that just, he was taking her body into the water with him to give her some sort of grave or something. Like I wasn't sure. I didn't, I did not see him like bringing her back to life as like, I didn't see that coming. I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, also speaking of Strickland, this is kind of like, uh, off topic because Strickland is dead at this point, but, um, just something I forgot to mention about him. Uh, you know, another thing too, is that there are scenes where he is berating Zelda and you can't really tell if he's berating the fact that she's a woman or if he's berating the fact that she's black or both. Like there are scenes you can't tell because for example, um, you know, after they have the discussion about uh, her middle name being Delilah and how Delilah betrayed Samson in the Bible and all that stuff, you know, foreshadowing that. Um, he says something like, uh, you know, that thing is not human because humans are created in the uh, image of God, right? Humans are created in God's image. Does that thing look like God to you? Does that thing look like something <laughs> that, you know, and uh, he then says like, no, like, uh, God created humans to look like him, you know, so humans like you or me. And then he pauses and says, well, probably a lot more like me, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, is he talking about the fact that she's a woman or is he talking about the fact that she's black or both? You know, I think it's both. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. And so there are some insidious lines where another line I really, really hate. I wanted to punch him in the freaking face <laughs> is when, uh, you know, he he says to them, to Eliza and Zelda, that, you know, they're something like they're they're um they're examining every possible lead, even if it seems trivial, you know, like remember uh, anything that you can remember about this the day that this happened, even if it seems trivial. And then he's like, trivial means unimportant. It's like <laughs> he's insulting their intelligence. And it's another situation where it's like because he directs it primarily at Zelda when he says that, like he's looking at yeah. Zelda when he says that. Um, and so again, it's another situation. Is he saying that she's uneducated and stupid because she's a woman or because she's black, you know, or both. So it's, yeah, there are so many insidious lines where it's clear that he's just such a hateful person and belittles everyone because of every single disadvantage that they have, you know? Um, but yeah. And I, I think too, um, one thing that I forgot to mention as well is that I think that Guillermo, well, we sort of talked about this a little bit. I think you went into this a little bit, but, um, you know, I think another reason why Guillermo del Toro decided to write Eliza as being speechless, as being nonverbal, is because of the ways multiple times throughout the creature from the Black Lagoon that Kay is figuratively silenced, you know, as a woman. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a very powerful, and like I said, that's what makes it so great when she uses sign language to insult him. You know, like taking back that power and using what he berates her for to her advantage. I love that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, bottom line, I love the ending. Very different from what I was expecting. Because what happens is I, yeah, I realized I just went down a rabbit hole and never finished explaining (laughs) what happens. (laughs) He brings her into the water and then uh, brings her back to life and heals her and also like touches the scars on her neck and turns them into gills. So now she can live underwater with him. Um, you know, so beautiful, beautiful fairy tale ending. You know, I, I just loved it. It's just absolutely visually beautiful, thematically beautiful, different than what I was expecting. 
and I loved it. What are your thoughts on the ending? One quick thing I, I think is interesting when you watch it more than once, um, you see Strickland actually actually descending into madness from the drugs he's taking. He's taking these painkillers, which I think are like Oxycontin or something. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And so he was a bad dude from the get-go, for sure. But I think he's also descending into madness because he's, he's taking these pills just in handfuls. Yeah. Um, but I, I did love this movie a lot. Um, I, I definitely left wanting more. And I think maybe that's the beauty of some of these movies. Um, it's it's best to leave people wanting more. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want there to be a sequel, I don't think. No, no, no. This is definitely in... I mean, you might be left wanting more, but I don't know that I did. I felt like this is all I really need is Eliza is happy now. She's not feeling lonely anymore. She's broken her routine. Um, yeah. You know, she's living the life that she was meant to live now, and that's all I really needed out of the story. I mean, would it be nice if... Uh, that had happened more for Giles as well, and, um, you know, Zelda and characters like that, yes, but it also wasn't really their story. They were side characters, and so, um, and realistically, you know, as difficult as it is to admit, and as sad as it is to admit, realistically, people in their situations in 1962 probably wouldn't have gotten happy endings. Maybe uh, Giles will write uh, Eliza and the Amphibian Man's story and become a worldwide famous author oh maybe i like that and share and share his money with zelda yeah i like that especially since um he is the one narrating it at the beginning and maybe that's meant to be like uh like the the first chapter of a book yes. that he's written or something yeah and he painted several or painted or drew i can't remember uh several pictures of amphibian man and eliza yep very true so he already already had pictures for the book i love no i love the movie goes that goes without saying yeah, so going into our rating, I mean, it, it seems like we already, I think we've both already, I mean, we'll go into detail here, but we've definitely both already made it pretty clear that we love this. Um, but I'll, I'll let you go first, uh, as far as your rating is concerned. Um, so newsflash, I love this movie. Uh, it's more enjoyable with every rewatch. Re and, uh, you know, some people might argue that I'm being too generous, but the way the movie makes me feel combined with the music and the visuals makes me rate it highly, even with some potential weak plot points. I mean, to me, a, a strong soundtrack that makes one feel something can really elevate the enjoyment of any movie. So I, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. And I'm pretty close. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, that that makes a good segue into me just giving my rating and then I'll explain it. Um, because I'm pretty close to you. I ended up on a 9 out of 10. Um, and I'll explain why I shaved a point off. But I, I too, just really, really love this movie. Um, I liked it a lot better than I was expecting to. Um and I mentioned earlier uh, that I would, in this section, discuss some of the themes a little bit more. And as I've already mentioned, you know, I love the monster versus man theme. Um, and I, I love that Amphibian Man kind of represents the other, you know, like a, an oppressed group. Like, and there are many of them represented in this movie. You know, people of color, women, um, LGBT people. Like, there are many people represented in this movie that are othered and kind of demonized. Um, and... The Amphibian Man is kind of like this uh, fantastic uh, representation of people like that. And, you know, basically everybody, and you kind of brought this up a little bit uh, a little while ago about, um, you know, how, like what, what Octavia Spencer said, you know, that like everybody yeah. who kind of befriends or empathizes with Amphibian Man is someone who is able to understand, they empathize with the fact that this character 
is seen as a monster because people treat them like that, you know? Um, so these are people like Eliza, who is nonverbal, nonverbal and a woman. Giles is gay. Um, and not only is Eliza, um, you know, mute, but she's also, as I mentioned, a woman and she's also orphaned. Um, right. Zelda is a woman of color. So, you know, these are all characters that are misunderstood and marginalized. And it feeds into that theme of, you know, misunderstanding people that we don't really, um, you know, it's just like, we don't know enough about them really to pass judgment. And uh, like I said already, um, you can tell that the cinematography, like just every single shot was important, deliberate, meticulous, is a work of art. Every shot matters. I love the color palette. I'm kind of glad that, to be honest, uh, I'm kind of glad that it isn't black and white. I still, I think, would like the movie, but I just love that green color palette, that green and teal yeah. palette. I love that. It's really something that makes the movie stand out, makes it unique. Because um, like I said, I really have never, I don't think in my life, seen a movie with that much green in it. Um the acting is wonderful. You know, the music I've already talked about. I love the score. Um, but yeah, I said a lot of nine out of 10, uh, primarily because of that bathroom scene. That's the main reason <laughs> that I shave a yeah. point off because, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. I'm a lot like I'm, I'm able to suspend my disbelief to the point where it doesn't really ruin my reaction to this movie. You know, I mean, nine is still a very, very high rating. So I still really, really love it. Um, and it's a visually beautiful scene, but yeah, like I said, I, I didn't buy it either. I also felt too, that the pacing was a little bit inconsistent. Like it would, I mean, I enjoyed myself throughout the whole thing. Don't get me wrong, but there are times where it just seems to be kind of like, uh, erratic is like the, you know, it'll get like action packed and exciting, but then it'll slow down for a long while. And then it'll get really action packed for a little bit, but then it'll slow down. Like it's just kind of an inconsistent pace. And um, I kind of just like considered that with my rating too. So, um, but overall, I don't really have much of anything bad to say about this movie. I loved it. I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad you recommended it to me. <laughs> so uh, nine out of 10, but yeah. Um, as far as like what I was saying earlier about, you know, people being misunderstood and stuff. I mean, I rented this as a DVD from the campus library where I teach and I saw that the back of the DVD even has like a tagline on it. It says uh, a poetic love letter to misunderstood creatures. And I think that's very much what it is. So I love the themes that are explored in this movie. I think it's a beautiful story. It's something I very much related to. So, yeah. I mean, I like your, your line when you said uh, for people that have been othered, I think that's a really succinct way, you know. Yeah, yeah, othered and marginalized, you know, that's that's definitely, and that's why I do, I, I think I do like your idea that it could be that, you know, Strickland's son is uh, effeminate or possibly gay or, you know, that that is a possibility um, because that would be, you know, yet another character in the movie that's being presented that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is the creature, or I'm sorry, the shape of water. I was going to say the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um <laughs> Uh, that is the shape of water. Um, hope you enjoyed our conversation, our discussion around it. I had a great time. I had a blast talking about this movie. Um, like I said, it was so much fun, uh, watching a movie for this podcast that I hadn't seen before. So 
Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that you joined, and definitely, we've talked before about other movies that you might like to join uh, for, like uh, Hercules, Coco, so definitely have to have you back. Would love to have you back. I look forward to it. Um, So if you would like to reach out and join the conversation, uh, share feedback about your favorite Disney movie, um, even if it's one that I've already covered, that's fine. I'll still share your thoughts. Um, Or if you want to share feedback about the next movie that I will be covering, which I'll be announcing very shortly um you can email disneyshpodcast at gmail.com you can join the facebook group which is facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast you can follow the instagram page which is disneyshpodcast you can also follow my personal instagram page if you would like to which is the lost passenger so next up on the podcast is uh another spooky favorite of mine um, also falls under the Disney lens, surprisingly, because uh, it was um, like The Shape of Water, a 20th Century Fox movie, which means that it's now owned by Disney. Um, but we're going to be doing the well, probably just going to be me. I don't have a I don't have a, a co-host lined up for this, but I'm going to be doing uh, the time warp again. So the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, I'm so excited. It's such a fun, nonsensical movie that really doesn't have a plot, but <laughs> It's so much fun. And one of the reasons why I'm doing it is that um, there is a theatrical showing of it this weekend in my town, um, which I'm going to anyway. So I was like, well, it's a Fox movie. I might as well. And it's a spooky movie. So I might as well cover it on the show. Um, So I'm excited to talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But until then, this has been Disney reminding you to never trust a man, even when he looks flat down there. (laughs) 